Well, it's good to be back with you. As I mentioned, I've been traveling a bit and uh, had a wonderful time in New Zealand. I, I arrived into a wet, windy, blustering Wellington, New Zealand, and went to a conference there with a number of churches and spent the Sunday at a church called Freedom Church. And I was there with Bob Hazlitt. It was a, a great opportunity just to continue to build relationship and, and friendship with Bob, but also to learn from him. And the one thing that impacted me, I haven't really traveled to a conference or some other churches outside of the relationships that I have for quite a while. And it just amazed me, wherever you go around the globe, there are people that are hungry for God. And where there's a hunger for God, He shows up to reveal Himself and to encounter people that are seeking Him. We had the opportunity of um, Sheldon playing in the, the worship team today. And I just remember when the last time Bob was here, and well, a few times back actually, he called them out and prayed over them. And it was a month or two later. They had been trying for years for, for a child. And it was a month or two later that they as a couple fell pregnant. And we also had that with Dean and Dominique Seppings. I'm not sure if all of you know the story, but for many years they were trying and Bob had come and given them a prophetic word. And now they've just asked me in this last week to dedicate little Seth. And I had the opportunity, obviously, of being with Bob and, and seeing these sort of testimonies regularly. Healing, salvation, people filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. It was just a, just a wonderful time that God reminded me, don't get stuck in the same old, same old. But realize the many-faceted nature of who I am and realize there's always more. We can get stuck in thinking, I'm going to come to church and it's going to be the same old, same old. I know what I'm going to get, but I want to encourage us as a people that we need to be coming with a hunger and a faith to encounter the living God. Not just stories about Him, not just other people's testimonies, but that He wants to personally be at work in your life, partnering with you to see His purposes come about and His blessing upon you. I was encouraged in that, and there are many other testimonies that I'll share as the weeks go forward. But coming out of that time with Bob, uh, this wet, windy bluster of wind in Wellington, which is one of the most windy places, you come into land, and Brent Moyle was telling me he had experienced the same thing. You come into land and you see the runway because the plane actually comes in sideways and then hits down and turns straight. Let me tell you, I enjoyed my time with Bob, but after that week, I was ready to come home. I still had to go on to, um, to the Gold Coast in Australia, and I didn't want to. Anyway, I arrived in the Gold Coast in Australia, and Sue and Garnet were trying to show it off. They took me to a great restaurant. They took me on their little boat on the waterways. I got home that night. My mom had also come because she's staying on um, to, to be with the family. My mom arrived. I said, Mom, you better pray for me because I'm wanting to get back to South Africa. This is this big, bold man of faith that I am. And anyway, she prayed for me, and, and, I, and I was happy to stay on a few more days. I enjoyed ministering with Garnet and Sue and the church, Streams of Life. It's just an amazing community, wonderful community with lots of um, opportunity just to reach out. A beautiful place. But let me tell you, my heart was pulling me back home. In the midst of looking at Facebook, at the midst of looking at burning tires in the streets, people asking, how can you be going back or hearing the threats of ISIS blowing up uh, La Lucia Mall or Gateway or wherever else they were aiming? And I thought, isn't that exciting to be someone who lives in South Africa? Gold Coast, I could wake up. It was beautiful. I got my coffee, hit the waterways, could go to the parks. But there's something about living in this nation 
that every day you're just not sure what are the opportunities going to be and how it's going to work in the midst of it. And he's placed me here for such a time as this. And so it's great to be back with you all. I just want to read a quick scripture, Proverbs 24, 3-4, for the men and for the fathers here, just before I get into the message. And if we can put that scripture on the screen, it says this, By wisdom a house is built. I want to say that's not talking about brick and mortar and four walls, but I believe it's talking about a household. When we have a a reverence for who God is, a holy fear, that's the beginning of wisdom. And by wisdom, a house is built. And through understanding, it is established. Understanding who he is in his character, in his nature, in his ways, and how we are to relate with each other. When we know that, there's something of a household being built and being established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled. We know in the Hebrew that word knowledge is not talking about just the cerebral knowledge, but it's talking about an intimate knowing and an ongoing relationship, a knowing God and a knowing each other individually, uniquely for who God's called us to be. As we start to do that with family, we'll find there's a fullness that comes into the house so that it might be filled with rare and beautiful treasures. How many of you like treasure? I've just been flying. I've gone through many... uh, Judy freeze, tax freeze, and, and there are many treasures I would have loved to have had for myself. There were great clothing items, there were great fragrances, there were great chocolates and various things which I'm not eating because I've come back lighter than I left. There were, there were many things that were tempting that would seem like treasures, the gadgets and all that there was. And many of us have an ambition for more of that. It's not always wrong can be a right ambition in God because we're wanting to provide for our families. But there's something that can happen in the midst of that for us as fathers, that when we get this relentless focus on the destination, where we're trying to get to, what we're trying to achieve, that we can miss out on the beauty and the joy of the journey. I want to say if you're a husband and if you're a father here today, I want to say that your house is filled with treasure, unique treasure. You might not be where you're wanting to be at this point in your life. You might not have achieved all you're wanting to achieve. You might not possess all you're wanting to possess. But I want to say that if you're a husband or a father here in this place today, I want to encourage you. You live in a treasure chamber and your wife and your children are priceless, valuable, unique gifts. And on this Father's Day, you might not be happy in the world's standards, but I want to say this. If you're a father in relationship with him and you've been blessed with a wife and children, you are blessed this Father's Day. That's my word to you and my encouragement to you. And if you go out of here and forget everything else but that, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. No, I'm joking. That'll stand you in good stead. I want to pick up its Father's Day, and I want to look at a, a story about a father and a son from a different perspective. Most likely you wouldn't have heard this in a Father's Day message. And I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to be touching on 1 Samuel chapter 13 and 1 Samuel chapter 14 and particularly verse 6. And in this, I want us to see something, even as I've been encouraged in my travels, even as I've looked back at what we're facing here individually, corporately, as a nation, even as we've been in 40 days of prayer, I think there's something that needs to mark your life and mine, probably more so than 
many other people's lives around the globe, although we all need this, that there needs to be an audacious faith in our hearts, alive in us, as we trust in God to provide supernatural solutions to the things that we are facing, these enormous problematic things. We need an audacious faith that's in our heart. And we start to see this outworking as we look at Saul, King Saul, and his son Jonathan's life. And if you are facing something that's a bit of a seemingly insurmountable challenge or problem, I trust that this message will encourage you and bless you. I know that I'm facing those things. I face them on a regular basis. And I know it's a reality of the day and the age that we live in. And it starts off in chapter 14, verse 1, saying this, Jonathan, the son of Saul. And the narrative uses this designation to contrast between a father and a son. There's a very big difference between this father, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. Saul displays, as we see in this story, he displays a cowardly disposition, where Jonathan shows a fearless faith that's been motivated in him in trusting who his God is. This is what it says of Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised fellows, or the Philistines, that's who it was talking about. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Quite an interesting statement. Doesn't seem to contain much faith when you look at it just from a surface level. But we'll unpack it and see what faith is alive in Jonathan's heart, even as he's saying this. He's saying nothing can hinder God. Grab onto that as we start. Let that be something that encourages you and whatever you might be finding is hindering, restricting, impeding, or holding you back. I want you to be encouraged in knowing this. Nothing can hinder God. 1 Samuel 13 has been unfolding the situation where Jonathan is speaking from. He's not speaking from a palatial residence. He's not speaking from having a vast army arrayed on his behalf standing before him. He's not speaking from what would be a position of seemingly power or privilege at this moment. If we've read through chapter 13, Israel, Saul and Jonathan, they in a tough situation. They're finding themselves firstly in the place where their God-given leader, Saul, has disobeyed God. He's dishonored God. He hasn't been loyal to what the Lord has told him. He's chosen his own way over God's way. He's turned his focus off Father God, and he's put his focus on the people that are gathered around him. He's been influenced by them, and he's given into the manipulation, um, and he's had a desire to appease them. So what happens in the midst of this situation is they've been fighting, and they come back, and they've regathered, and what he wants to do is he wants to offer a sacrifice to the Lord so that he can know that the Lord will bless them. But he knows that the Lord has said to wait for Samuel to come and perform the sacrifice. But when the people start getting uneasy, and it seems to be taking too long from Saul's perspective, Saul starts to think, well, forget the Lord's ways and forget honoring him. I want the people to keep honoring me. And so Samuel hasn't arrived, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands, not do it God's way, and I'm going to offer the sacrifice. And he does this, and just after he's offered it, Samuel arrives very timely. And he says this, instead of pronouncing a divine blessing upon Saul and Israel, he pronounces this. You have not kept the command of the Lord. Your kingdom will not endure. 
The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And we know that the Lord has sought out David, who was a man after his own heart. So that's the first thing that's taken place. Israel have found themselves in a place where they seem to be out of favor with the Lord and where Saul has been judged for stepping out and trying to appease the crowds rather than honor the Lord. The second thing that we see is happening here is there's been 3,000 fighting men that have been with Saul. He's had them gathered around him. But he's gone out and he's been um, doing various uh, things and having various uh, skirmishes and he's provoked the ire and the anger of the Philistine army. And now the Philistine army is starting to make plans to come and to annihilate Israel, these 3,000 men. And this army, the Philistine army, was said to consist of 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and men armed that were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I want to say, ladies, it's Father's Day. This isn't a romantic comedy sort of story from the Bible. This is an action-packed thriller that we're reading here today. So bear with us. It's for the fathers, but for you as well. But it's seeming things can not get worse than this. This is how bad it is. This is what's happening. But in seeing this army that's coming to annihilate them, it says that the soldiers that were with Saul, they knew that they were outmatched, and they started to quake with fear. I want to say that's not just poetical license that's being used. If you have ever watched a, a highlight of the 95 World Cup, when you saw Mike Cat getting low and Jonah Lomo running down, charging down, bustling down upon him, you would have seen someone who quaked in fear. There's a literal quaking in fear that is happening here. So much so that these men, these soldiers, these Israelites are starting to they, they're running to hide, and they're hiding themselves in caves. If they come across a, across a cave, they're jumping into it. They're hiding themselves in thickets. I mean, a thicket is like an overgrown bunch of thorns. and all, they, They're hiding in the thickets. They're hiding among the rocks. They're hiding in pits. They're hiding in cisterns. They're hiding anywhere where they can run and get away from this army that is approaching. And at the end of it, as gathered here today, there were only... 600 brave men, as I'm sure we all fit into that category here this morning. But there were 600 left facing tens of thousands of the host of the enemy. That was the second thing. The third thing is this. Even amongst the 600 men that are gathered, they only had two swords amongst them. One was with Jonathan and one was with Saul. And so we see that there's this huge oppression of the Philistines that were coming against them. Things can't seem to get much worse. Maybe it was a, a bit of a sense of what we had at halftime yesterday evening watching the game at Ellis Park. Things cannot get seemingly worse. And, and there's this wondering, you know, are we going to end in doom? Is this all going to come down upon us? They, they're in this place where this is what they're thinking. And they would be destroyed, but for the miraculous power of God. Don't you love that phrase? But God. I love that phrase. It means no matter what's going on, anything that's happening, whatever situation, whatever circumstance, whatever you find yourself facing at this time, even when it looks like you're guaranteed and doomed for destruction, not to amount to anything, not to have a hope or a future, and that by fact can be true, but God. But God. I love that. It gives me such confidence in myself. And, and we see this with, with Jonathan in this situation. There's something of a trusting in God. And so as we re read this, I want to challenge you. 
I want to challenge you in this. As we read this story, I don't believe this is a story that's meant to lull you to sleep like a bedtime story. I believe this is a story that's meant to put a fire in your heart for the battle lines. It's not a bedtime story, it's a battle line story. What do I mean by that? It's the sort of story that men do who are armed and on the front line ready for the battle that's coming to instill faith and courage and belief in them to know that they can overcome this enemy and all the ploys and strategies and all that's lined up in front of them. This is the sort of story that's meant to put fire in your heart and mind so that we can be the, on the front lines of what God's doing to see his kingdom advance. Not a bedtime story, it's a battle line story. And I didn't steal that, I made it up. Doesn't it sound good? I liked it. That's why I repeat it often, I'm proud of it. I was doing it at bedtime. And so I want to encourage you. We all have our own challenges. I know there's many that I'm facing, but just like Jonathan here, I want to encourage you, whatever challenge you are facing, whatever obstacle you are facing, whatever circumstance you are facing, even as they were lined up against Israel, I want you to picture them in your mind's eye, lined up in front of you, so that as you see how Jonathan, not having his eyes on his earthly father, who's operating in fear and cowardice, but having his eyes on his heavenly father, the living God, allows courage to arise in him to accomplish great things that don't only bless him, but bless all those around him as he overcomes these obstacles. I want you to see these challenges falling in front of you as you start to trust in the nature and the character of God. I want there to be faith that arises. I want there to be hope that arises. I trust that a boldness will arise in you because if God did it then, he can do it now. Will you say that with me? If God did it then, he can do it now. I'm not reading this to tell you what God did then. I'm reading this to encourage you of what God did then and what he is wanting to do now. And he's more than able in your situation and mine to do it. And so there's something Jonathan is recognizing when he knows that there's nothing that can prevent God from saving. There's nothing that can prevent God from saving because saving is essential to his character. He's not coming and, and saving them in this situation in the midst of a big obstacle to show how powerful he is. I mean, there's that as well. He's not saving and coming into this situation to show how much he loves them or loves you and he does, and he loves you more than you could ever know. Now, the reason he is saving, he's coming and he's stepping in, and he's going to come into this situa situation and save because it's true to his character, and that's why he does it. He is always consistent with his character and his nature. That's why we need to encourage ourselves by exploring the character and nature of who our God is, our Heavenly Father, so that we can better understand our identity and His identity, so that we can live lives that reflect Him with courage and a boldness, and that we might be recognized as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so there's this thing that's happening here, and Jonathan says, nothing can hinder God from saving. God is saving because he is a savior. God delivers because he's a deliverer. God overcomes. He is triumphant and he is the victor because that is who he is and that is what he has done. And he's wanting to lead us in that same triumphant procession if we will humbly believe him, accept him, receive him, follow him in all the ways he's prepared for us. And so this is what we see out unfolding here. And the first point I want to put up we can put up the first point, that we see something in Jonathan where there's an audacious faith 
that starts to arise in him. Despite all that's happening with Israel, despite all the circumstance that's surrounding him, Jonathan still believes that Yahweh, the living God, is able to save. God is Yahweh. He is the God who saves. This is really what we believe here, even as we believe in the name of Jesus. That means Jesus' name, Yeshua, means Yahweh saves. And we know that the word says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you don't know and you're here today and there's something being stirred in your heart, you can call on the name of Jesus through faith and you will be saved. It's a wonderful promise. And Jonathan is aware of this. He's aware of this even as we are aware that Jesus' mission was to come to earth and to destroy the works of the enemy. He had a purpose in that because he wanted to bring deliverance from all the bondage and captivity that the enemy held us in. And he wanted to save us from sin and from death. In the same way, Jonathan is realizing, even as Jesus was the perfect picture of the Father, Jonathan is realizing that the Father, the living God, is wanting to work salvation and deliverance on his behalf. And so there's faith that's arising in Jonathan's heart. Can I ask you this question? Is there faith in your heart today? Is there faith arising in your heart today? Is it an audacious faith that believes in God for all that he says he is and is wanting to do? Jesus says, when I return, will I find faith alive on the earth? And Jonathan has this audacious faith. It's not a presumptuous faith. It's not a faith that's a manipulative insistence on getting his own way. But rather, there's this flicker of hope within him that says, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps there's faith flickering and coming alive in his heart. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. There's something of this faith that's coming alive in him that's a a dogged refusal to allow any present circumstance to compromise the character of his living God. He's not going to allow anything to do that. So he's saying perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. It's this beautiful picture of faith that's outworking here. It's the same sort of faith that David operated in three chapters later when he runs out against Goliath. And he doesn't know how it's going to unfold, but he knows that he's not going to allow some Philistine to, to start to pull down and taint and to mock the name of the living God. And so he runs out and he confronts him head on. And we know that God works powerfully in the midst of that situation because his character is unchangeable. And we see like David, Jonathan is taking this reckless leap of faith into God's character. I say that because sometimes we take reckless leaps. They're not of faith. We take reckless leaps of presumption where we lean on our own wisdom and we try and jump off and grab onto things where there's no handhold or foothold and we land up slipping and landing up in the muck and the mire because we're leaning on man's wisdom, our own planning, our own thought patterns, our own conniving, our own poise, our own strategies, whatever it might be. And we don't have our eyes on God and we're diving, diving and we're jumping off laterally. And we need to, and I heard this phrase and I love it, we need to be a vertically inclined people. Vertically inclined. When we jump, we jump up and into the very character and the nature of who God is. Because then he's able to withhold you. And it's in him that you can live and move and have your being. And so we see this in Jonathan's life. And I, I read up a commentary on this verse 6. It's from 
For those of you who who are a bit of students of the word, Jamison, Fawcett, and Brown's critical and explanatory commentary on the whole Bible. That's the title. It's not my phrase for it. And verse 6 says this, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. It sounds a little bit like he's not in faith when you read it from from a surface level. But this is what the commentary says it means. This expression does not imply doubt. It signifies simply that the object he, speaking of Jonathan, that the object he aimed at was not in his own power. It depended upon God. And that he expected success neither from his own strength nor his own merit. He's not saying he doubts whether God can do it or will do it. He's saying perhaps God will do it because I cannot do it and bring it about in my own strength. It has to be him. And then it carries on to say, and I love this description, the feat was begun, this incredible miracle was begun and achieved by the faith of John, Jonathan. But the issue was of God. Jonathan's faith activated it and brought it to its completion, but the outworking and the power that was taking place in the midst of bringing that miraculous happening about was of God. And so there was audacious faith that was arising in Jonathan. And then we see when faith starts to arise in your heart, when you start to see these circumstances before you, and unlike Saul, you don't concentrate on those around you, but you're a vertically inclined person, and you start to focus your eyes on the living God, your heavenly Father, faith starts to arise in your heart. And once faith has started to arise in your heart, then what starts to take place, the second point, what starts to take place is there starts to be a contagious boldness about you that replaces fear. When we came into this place today and we put on the first light switch, that first light dispelled the darkness that was in this place. And in the same way, just a little bit of boldness is able to dispel a lot of fear. When the Springboks were down with 20 minutes to go and we were being badly taken by Ireland and an individual who had a little bit of boldness came onto the field by the name of Ruan Combrink and he started to burn down that right hand touchline and there was a, a Irish defender coming in his way this boldness he dropped his shoulder bounced him out the way he scored a try and I want to say a little bit of boldness drove out a lot of fear and the South African team changed in a moment would you agree did you watch it sorry I enjoyed the game I'm bringing it in If Ireland had won, I wouldn't mention it. (laughs) But there's something that takes place. It's in the same way that William Wallace, when he gives that freedom speech in in Braveheart, a little bit of boldness dispels a lot of fear. The same way that if you had looked at someone like um, Winston Churchill, when he was facing all that was arrayed against him with the Nazi regime, and we see that he says, never give up. A little bit of boldness dispels a lot of fear. The same with Martin Luther King Jr. When he stands up in the midst of the hostility, says, I have a dream. And a little bit of boldness dispels a lot of fear. And there's something happening the same in Jonathan. Billy Graham's got a great quote that says, if if we can put that quote up, courage is contagious. When a brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are stiffened. And there's something happening in Jonathan where there's this, he's been looking at God. There's been faith that's arising in his heart. And there's this contagious boldness that's coming upon him such that he says to his armor bearer, let us go out of hiding and us too confront this enemy of at least 20 soldiers at the top of this mountain. If they say we ought to come up to them, we'll have them. And his armor bearer, who has been one of those, I'm sure, that were quaking in fear, says to him, do all that you have in your mind. Go ahead. I'm with you heart 
and soul. There's something of a faith in Jonathan and God's character. Can I give you an acronym of what faith means? If you're taking notes, you can take this down. Faith, F-A-R-T-H. Faith is forsaking all. I trust him. Forsaking all, I trust him. Jonathan's eyes weren't on the circumstance, the Philistines, his quaking father, and all that was going on about him. Forsaking all, he trusted in the Lord as God, his character and nature, and knew that nothing could hinder his God from saving. That's the type of faith I'm talking about. And at that point, the Philistines, the Philistines could have woken up. They could have come down. They could have known. They could have wiped out the Israelites, just a few Israelites. They weren't even armed. But I want to say that fear is a funny thing. The acronym for fear, we've heard it recently, was false evidence appearing real. F-E-A-R, false evidence appearing real. Fear is a funny thing. A little bit of boldness can turn the weapon of fear back on itself. A little bit of boldness in your life and mine, I'm not talking about mustering it up. I'm not talking about trying to act or bravado. I'm talking about a boldness that comes out of faith, born by knowing who God is, his character and his nature. I want to say a little bit of that sort of faith in your life, that sort of boldness in your life will turn the weapon of fear away from you and back on the enemy. That's what we start to see taking place as we continue in this story. But let me ask you this question. Have you ever considered why that happens? Why does the enemy come at us with fear? Why is that one of his greatest weapons? I want to say it's this. It's because the enemy fears you. The enemy fears that you would start to recognize who you are through the blood-washed regeneration that you've been through because of what Jesus did on the cross, because you might start to recognize that you are a son and daughter of the living God, that you have a heavenly father who is king of kings and lord of lords. And if you start to realize that, you'll start to realize the resource and the authority that is at your disposal as you can come boldly before his throne room and because you've been seated in Christ in heavenly places. The enemy fears that you're going to start to begin to proclaim that and declare that and confess that and believe that, that you're going to start to have faith in God's unchanging character, that he is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he'll do and he can be in you all that he said you can be as well. The enemy starts to fear that. The enemy starts to grow concern when you have this faith in an unchanging God and you start to realize that nothing can hinder him, nothing can restrict him, nothing can impede him, nothing can hold him back, nothing can stop him because he is all powerful. He is The Savior wanting to save and deliver, and he does that on behalf of the people that he came to in love through the cross, as Jesus demonstrated. And so there's a fear that can come back on the enemy when you start to get an understanding of who you are and who he is and the purpose to which he's called you. Because the enemy would love to keep you in intimidation, intimidated. He'd love to keep you bound in fear. He'd love to keep you... um, immobilized in a sense by all that surrounding you of circumstance and situation and all these enemies that are surrounding you. But it's a con and it's a bluff because as powerful as he might seem, he knows full well and he wants you not to know full well that he is a defeated foe. He was defeated 2,000 years at the cross, 2,000 years ago at the cross when Jesus said it is finished. And when we have that faith alive in our hearts, And that boldness arises because we know that. The weapon of fear is turned off of us and back onto the enemy. So that's what's happening in Jonathan in this moment. 
And it leads into the third thing that takes place. Once that boldness is at work in your life and fear is being stripped off you, then you start to see clearly the strategy of that which God has put before you. That supernatural strategy. And it can seem strange in the world's eyes. When Jonathan goes to his armor bearer and says, let's come out of hiding and let's shout out to the Philistines who are in a stronghold, fully armed, outnumbering us, and let's see what they say to us. Because if they say, come up, well, then let's climb up this mountain because then we know with this one sword that we have, we're going to take them out. I want to see, and that seems like a strange plan. And that's why it very well could be God. And we know in this instance, it is God. And so this starts to unfold. And the commentary will tell us that in this instance, Jonathan didn't come up with this thought pattern by himself. It was led of him by the Spirit to be brought about by the working of the Holy Spirit. But anyway, Jonathan says this and proposes this to, to his armor bearer. And then they shout out. And then the, the Philistines say, come up. Now, at this point, there's no safe option. They're going to have to fight for their lives no matter what because either they're going to come up or the enemy is going to come down and wipe them out. But the enemy says, come up. And so Jonathan turns to the armor bearer and says, we are going to win a great victory because God is on our side. And they start to climb up this mountain. It says, with their hands and their feet, they start to climb up amongst these peaks. And the, the Philistine army probably would have been thinking, they're never going to get up here. We're not concerned. This is just a little bit of banter. But Jonathan and his armor bearer are on the way up the mountain. And there's something, that's taken hap- there's something that's happened and taking place in Jonathan's heart where he's realized, Lord, I don't want to just sit back and wonder if you're going to tell me what's going to happen. Lord, I want to be a man of action and I want to pray that you direct me on the way. Sometimes we, we land up in a place where we don't want to do anything and until the Lord speaks, we just immobilize. But there's other times where there's a prompting of faith, a prompting of the Holy Spirit, where we need to get active, we need to get busy, and we need to trust that even as that proverb says, many are the plans of man, but the Lord directs his steps, that as we start moving, God is going to direct us. And how do we know when we get to that place? Well, it's when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired of not realizing and recognizing and experiencing the presence of God. Jonathan had got to that point where in the pit and in the thicket and in the cistern and hiding in the cave with all the others, feeling sorry for themselves and depressed, he realized God's not here and I'd rather be where God is, even if it's on the front lines, climbing a mountain, confronting an enemy, whether they outnumber me or I'm armed better than me, no matter what, I'd rather be right in the thick of it where God is than hiding in a cave or a pit or whatever else might have me intimidated and fear and not know the presence of God. Can I ask you, is there things that are intimidating you and causing you to pull back and hide away from that which you know is God's purpose for you, from that which you know is the prompting of faith in your heart and the provoking of the Spirit of God in your life? What are those things that are intimidating you right now? Henry Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, he says this. We can put that, that quote up. You can't go with God and stay where you are. You can't go with God and stay where you are. You can't be praying, Lord, I want to be fully involved with what you're doing. I want to be a part of it. I want to be an instrument in your hand. I want you to use me. I want you to affect my family and the city and the nation and the nations. Lord, I want to be um, an ambassador for your kingdom. And then say, but I want to stay where I am because I'm quite comfortable. 
You can't go with God and stay where you are. We need to be seeking out where the Lord is, where the divine activity is taking place and where he is calling us to be of effect in his kingdom. And so we see this. We see that there's the strategy that's emerged to Jonathan. And then I just want to finish with this point, the fourth point, that God brings supernatural multiplication. Jonathan and the armor bearer did exactly as Jonathan had suggested. They stepped out of the hiding place. And sometimes we, we, don't, we, we limit God to our own capacity. God, you want me to achieve that, but I don't have the capacity for that, so I'm not even going to start. But we need to know that as we start to step out, God starts to release his resource and multiplication in us to accomplish the task he's called us to. So when they were hiding, Jonathan and the armor bearer, it might have seemed a huge thing to expose themselves from that place of hiding and to to go and to shout out to the enemy. You might have felt, and I might feel, Lord, I accomplished a great thing for you, but I'm tired. That was spiritually taxing, and and that was a great victory, but I'm going to relax now. But that wasn't enough. Then they had to climb up hands and feet this, this mountain peak to get up to carrying the one sword and whatever, um, whatever farming equipment the armor bearer was armed with to get up this mountain. And once they've get it, got up this mountain, they, they must be tired. It was, such, it was such the Philistines didn't even think they would make it up. Maybe we've shouted out, we've confronted the enemy, we've climbed this mountaintop. We think, Lord, you know, your victory hasn't come yet. I'm tired. I don't have the strength. Then Jonathan had to, with the armor bearer, he had to, with his one sword, kill 20 of the enemy. I mean, how many of us would be up for that after we've done all the other things? And then once he's killed 20 of the enemy, then there's thousands upon thousands of others gathered against him. I love that quote that, he, uh, that, that scripture says, where, where Jonathan says, let's go up. Let's go over to the outpost outpost of those uncircumcised Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I think he's thinking it's going to be by few. You know, I'm going to do it. But there's a multiplication that starts to take place. That as he goes up and his energy is spent climbing that mountaintop, there's fresh energy in and of God, imbued by the Spirit, where he's able to wipe out 20 of the enemy. And I'm sure he turned to see the, the thousands gathered and thought, Lord, it's not going to be by the many. It's going to be the few by the few. But nothing can hinder you from accomplishing your purpose. You are a deliverer and a savior. And I'm going to take them out with my one sword. And my armor bearer can come with his and finish the job behind me as he was doing. (laughs) But what happens? The Lord causes a great multiplication. And I think suddenly the Philistines in a bit of disarray, seeing one person take out 20 at one of their strongholds over a mountaintop are thinking, hang on a moment, what's going on? And then suddenly there starts to be others that have got a boldness and a courage because they've seen a man who's got his eyes focused on God and not the enemy. And there starts to be courage coming to the other 600 and they start, they stop trembling in fear and they start popping out of the thickets. The Philistines would have never expected them there. And out of the pits and out of the caves and out of the cisterns, they're coming from every area and the Philistines are so terrified that they start killing each other. Because a little bit of boldness turns the weapon of fear back on itself. And so they start to wipe themselves out and an amazing miracle has taken place from start to finish. But in order to accomplish it, somebody needed to respond to God in faith. 
Somebody needed to declare the truth of what God's character is and his nature is. Someone needed to prove that truth by acting a faithful and faithful obedience to what God's saying. Somebody had to do that. And it wasn't a father cowering in fear, looking at those around him. It was a son who had his eyes turned onto his heavenly father and saying, I know you to be who you are. And so he takes this, this audacious faith. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by few or by many. And so we see this, this outworking. But we also face challenges, and you think, how does this apply to me? Well, maybe you hear this morning in one of those circumstances or challenges or enemies that you're facing is this thing of debt. Maybe you're facing it down, staring it down. And in the midst of that, you only have a few rand. You don't have what you feel is enough to deal with the situation. Maybe you're finding yourself in the place where stress is all around you and it's got you bogged down. And maybe there are not enough hours in the day to get through what you're going through. Maybe you've been part of the 40 days of prayer with us here at Harvest and others around this nation. And you've been praying because there's an enemy of godlessness that is in our city and in our region and in our nation. And there just doesn't seem to be enough righteous men and women of God to be able to stand up against it. But I want to say nothing can hinder God, restrict God, limit God, stop God, contain God, trip God up in being who He is as Savior and Deliverer. God will deliver by few or by many, by many or by few. But will that be you? And will that be me? He's looking for those who will respond in faith, declare the truth of who He is and His unchanging character. And prove that truth by living out faith-filled, obedient lives. Vertically inclined towards our Heavenly Father. I want to pray for us at that point. But I want to say it's not a bedtime story. I haven't been trying to lull you to sleep. This is a battle line story. And I want to see fire in your heart. So can you stand and be in agreement with me as I pray? Lord, I just pray. Even as we gather here today, Lord, I know that there are real challenges. We're not ignorant to the fact that there are real obstacles, real hindrances, real enemies. And Lord, we can feel outnumbered. We can feel outgunned. We can feel that we are up against every obstacle and form of bondage and fear that might be levied against us. But Lord, we are not concerned with focusing our eyes on those things. They are trying to grab our attention. But Lord, we are wanting to turn our eyes upon you. Father, even as it's Father's Day, we turn our eyes upon you, our heavenly Father. We see you as who you are and your identity, the unchanging, living, mighty God, Yahweh, the God who saves. And Lord, even as we turn our eyes upon you and know who you are, I thank you that you start to establish us in our identity as sons and daughters of the living God. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their father, I pray that, Lord, something would prompt them, Spirit of God, that you would prompt them in their heart to call on the name of Jesus, that, that might be, they might be saved and know all that is theirs in you. I pray that you would do that prompting and that work deep within them. But, Lord, I pray that we would be a courageous people. 
I pray, Lord, that there would be faith alive in our hearts. I pray that, Lord, you would give us eyes to see your strategy for this season. And I pray, Lord, that as we start to step out in faith, that you would direct us. But even as you direct us, that you would multiply resource to us, in us, and through us. I pray, Lord, that we would be those that would would be believing and seeing the unhindered working of your mighty hand in our lives in this church, this city, and this nation. Lord, that you would show yourself strong and bring your deliverance and salvation because you are Yahweh, the God who saves. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You were who you were. You are who you are. You'll be who you will be. You are the ever-presencing God who presences yourself amongst your people in the immediacy of the moment to bring the breakthrough that only you can bring. That's who you are. Come and have your way in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.